Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the History Essay. I hope everyone has had a good week so far. So today we're going to switch stuff up. We're going to go off the beaten path, so to speak. If you follow me on Instagram, and my Instagram profile is at the underscore history underscore ESE, I put out a question for all of you to send me questions on certain topics of history that you would like me to answer because I want to do sort of like a Q&A episode for today. And I got some questions. I got about 12 and I decided to pick out three just because I didn't want to have to answer all 12 that were submitted. That would probably be a very long episode. But these three questions, you know, I'm going to answer them briefly. I'm going to give a good analysis of the topics, and then I'll sort of give my opinion, you know, the way I do other episodes. So the topics from these questions have to do with topics which contrast are very different. They're, you know, on the history spectrum. So there's two very serious topics, and that is the Nanking Massacre and the Spanish Conquistador Hernan Cortez. And the other topic is Argentina. So two serious questions that were asked with regards to Nanking, the Nanking Massacre and Hernando Cortez, and just a question of what makes Argentina so special. So let's just get into it. This is a filler week. This is us just having a discussion about this. So the first question I got was, what was the Nanking Massacre? The Nanking Massacre, or as some of you may know it, the Rape of Nanking, occurred in 1937. This is a very dark chapter in human history, which took place in China. It took place a little bit before, well, two years before the start of the Second World War. Depending on who you ask, the Second World War either started in 1937 with the invasion of China by Japan, or the Second World War took place in 1939 with the invasion of Poland. But we're going on a tangent right here. Anyways, the Nanking Massacre took place from 1937 to January of 1938. As the name suggests, it took place in the then capital of nationalist China, Nanking. It took place as Japanese soldiers were entering the capitalist, the, uh, excuse me, the capital of nationalist China, the city of Nanking. At that time, China was sort of split. It was the warlord period. The nationalists just happened to be a rather prominent group amongst them, amongst all the warlords. And so... As Japanese soldiers entered, what was about to begin was one of the most horrific mass killings of civilians on the face of the earth. What was about to take place is, in my opinion, an event which is somewhat equivalent in weight to the Holocaust. And as I discussed a little bit forward, you sort of hopefully understand why. There is a really good YouTube channel that I suggest you all follow. It is called Knowing Better. 
and they have a video called playing the victim and it has to do a lot with this so i reference this video a lot i watched this video in my um while i was making the script for this episode so i suggest you all go watch it because uh the host of that youtube channel he does a really good job of explaining this with a little bit more depth but you know returning to the topic the level of depravity with which some of these events, some of these killings took place, is just something else. Japanese soldiers, they took Nanking after a brief battle. A brief disappointing battle, in the opinion of Japanese soldiers. You have to understand, they op the Japanese soldiers operated, you know, operated with a warrior code known as Bushido. And really quick, Bushido is, Bushido is, you know, when it comes to battle for the Japanese, Bushido is everything. And one of the main tenets of Bushido is that surrendering is dishonorable. For the rest of us in the Western world and other parts of the world, if you can live to fight another day, that's good, you know? So if you surrender one position like let's say you were in a war if you surrender one position but you live to fight another day you can regroup and possibly retake that position retake that city that fort whatever for the japanese it was plain and simple it was a fight to the death you fight your enemy to the death and they're supposed to fight you to the death and that's it there's no surrendering you live or you die right you live as the victor or you die as the person who lost or you die as a soldier who was a part of the victory i don't want to make things too complex but you get where i'm going at you get you know what i'm trying to get at you know surrender is not an option for the japanese soldiers and so when they took Nanking, they were quite taken aback. They were very disgusted at the fact that the Chinese soldiers were surrendering rather easily. They were running away. They were taking off their uniforms and they were trying to hide amongst the civilians in Nanking. The Japanese soldiers considered Chinese soldiers and Chinese civilians in general cowards. It is referenced in the YouTube video playing the victim by knowing better that the Japanese viewed the Chinese as subhuman. They weren't even human because they weren't even putting up a fight. And so because of all this, because the Chinese were not giving them that epic battle to the death, the Japanese soldiers were very angry that the Chinese were not ex doing what the Japanese expected of the Chinese soldiers. And they wanted revenge for this. They wanted revenge for not having, you know, the glory of an epic battle. They wanted revenge for the Chinese not giving them the fight that they wanted. And so an order from some higher-ups in the Japanese military went out to Japanese soldiers with regards to the people of Nanking. That order was kill all captives in the city. Captives meant anybody. Again, anybody. It didn't matter the age. It didn't matter the gender. It didn't matter whether they were pregnant or not. Anybody. Kill all captives. 
And so Japanese soldiers entered the city, and right away the killings began. There really is no word to describe how bad these killings were. In my opinion, barbaric is too soft of a term. Gruesome. Devilish. Diabolical. Like, I don't know. But this is where, and this is where I'm going to reference that YouTube video a lot because the host of that channel, he does a really good job as sort of explaining how some of these killings took place. I just want to give a trigger warning. What I'm about to describe, first and foremost, if I'm laughing, I'm not laughing because I find this funny. I'm laughing because this is somewhat of an awkward topic. Or not awkward. This is somewhat of a dark topic. It's very hard for me to cover stuff like this. It's very hard for me to cover the Holocaust, for example. I really... Studying the Holocaust makes me uncomfortable just because what took place studying, for example, you know, slavery also makes me a bit uncomfortable because of the, the, the depravity, the just... You really get to see that dark side of human nature when you study stuff like, you know, the treatment of African slaves in the United States or, you know, the killings of Native Americans or the Holocaust or the Nanking massacre. It's very hard. So if I'm laughing, it, I'm not laughing because I find this funny. I'm laughing because laughing is my defense mechanism whenever things get somewhat uncomfortable. So I just want to put that out there. But I also want to put out a trigger warning. You might be having a good day. You might be having, you know, a nice day out, or you might be listening to this, driving, trying to relax. And I'm about to describe these really barbaric killings of, you know, that the Japanese committed against the Chinese. I don't want to ruin your day, and I apologize, but, you know, this is something that you do need to know about. You do need to know about what it is they did. And so, again, trigger warning. I apologize ahead of time, but here we go. So in the Knowing Better uh, Playing the Victim episode on YouTube, the host describes some of the ways that Japanese soldiers killed Chinese civilians. So Japanese soldiers would just indiscriminately bayonet people. If you don't know what a bayonet is, a bayonet is that knife or that blade that is at the end of a gun or a rifle and... You can imagine how it is the Japanese soldiers killed people in that way. So they just indiscriminately bayoneted people. It didn't matter the age. It didn't matter whether they were old or they were young. It didn't matter whether they were male or female. They just did it. So that's one way some of these killings took place. In another far more diabolical way of killing all the captives in the city, they would force Chinese civilians to dig a trench. They would then tell the Chinese captives to line up in front of the trench. A Japanese soldier would then take out his katana, or his samurai sword, for some of you who may not know what a katana is, but um, they would take out their katana swords, and then they would just behead these captives who were lined up in front of the trench. The captives who were then behind them had to push the bodies of the recently murdered into the trench. And then they themselves 
these Chinese captives who were now lined up in front of a trench filled with the bodies of people they probably knew would also be beheaded. This was made into a sort of contest between Japanese soldiers to see who could behead more people in the fastest amount of time. And it is reported, it was reported in Japanese newspapers at the time as if it was like a sports game, as if it was a sporting event. You know, there was like scores. There's, there's, you can Google this. There is a picture of two Japanese soldiers kind of standing, hanging out, bragging, whatever you want to call it. And then there's two numbers. Um, I can't remember the numbers exactly from the episode, but it's like a hundred something to a hundred something. I think it was like 126 to 174. Those numbers meant that's how many people they beheaded. And this was on Japanese newspapers. So the Japanese population knew that this was happening. But of course, because they viewed the Chinese as subhuman, they're like, eh, you know, like they, for them, it was like, oh, you know, this is war. It happens. But the way they were treating it as if it was a sports game, you know, they were keeping the scores. To me, that's just dark. Like, that's just you really not caring about human life. But I digress. In another act of what I've been talking about, in another sort of way they would kill the Chinese population in Nanking, they would force some of these captives to go into a trench and a Japanese armored vehicle, a Japanese tank or whatever, would then drive up, drive above them, crush them to death, so that these vehicles could drive over and make it to the other side. Japanese soldiers also forced Chinese civilians to drink kerosene. Kerosene is a flammable liquid, and you might think, well, they might have died from the kerosene that they drank. Well, they didn't. They would drink the kerosene, Japanese soldiers would then force them to run, and then the Japanese soldiers would take aim with their guns, shoot them, and they would explode. I don't know if I should talk about the rest of the ways that they killed people, but like I said, they bayoneted anyone regardless of age. They bayoneted babies. I'm not making any of this up. I advise that you don't Google this, but there are countless images that report this. Or countless images that refute this. They back this up. This did occur. Again, I advise you, if you have a weak stomach, not to see this because it may just... It's tough. It's tough to... Um to digest. Japanese soldiers also committed mass rape across Nanking. Around 200,000 to 300,000 people were killed in total. Between 20,000 to 80,000 women were raped and then they were killed 
by Japanese soldiers because they didn't want to leave any evidence of what they did behind. It was all just, like I said, this is all very dark. This is all very, it's a lot. But the story kind of has a strange hero in all of this. An unlikely hero. His name is John Robb. John Robb was Nazi Germany's representative in China at the time. He was in Nanking. So he was seeing all of this go down. And he was writing letters back to his um, some family members. I think it was his wife back in Berlin. He was also journaling. And it is thanks to him that we have gruesome firsthand accounts of what took place. But John Robb, as well as other foreign diplomats, they tried their best to save as many Chinese civilians from the Japanese as possible. John Robb safeguarded them within the compounds of the embassy in Nanking. And so thanks to this, he is widely regarded as the Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler, for those of you who may not know, Oscar Schindler is the German industrialist who saved um, countless I would almost, I think like thousands of Jews from the concentration camps. You know, there's the movie about him, Schindler's List. So John Robb is considered the Oscar Schindler of China. There are monuments to him in China today for what he did. Again, John Robb, a Nazi representative, is a hero in all of this. This story gets a bit strange. Other foreigners also helped. John Robb, unfortunately, when he got back to Nazi Germany, he was told never to speak of this again. And they took a lot of his accounts, I'm sure, and they either tried to destroy him, but we have some saved. History, fortunately, has some saved accounts. So we know from someone who was there what took place. This is a topic that I am going to cover in an episode all its own for two reasons. Not a lot of people know about it. Just like you, I recently learned about this last year. I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't know this took place. When I did figure it out, I was like, holy crap. They really, Japan really did this and Japan is really trying to hide this nowadays. And another reason why I would wanna cover it is the relevance to today. This is an event which has left a deep scar in not only Chinese history, but the broader Asian history. You know, it sort of explains why today there is still sort of tensions between China and Japan. There's, there's a reason why the two countries sometimes don't get along. You know, it's the reason why, again, going broad, a lot of Asian countries and Japan, you know, because Japan invaded a huge part of East Asia and Southeast Asia. It's a big reason why there's still some animosity towards Japan even nowadays. Close to like, you know, six, seven decades after this conflict is done, there's still bad feelings about this. But I guess the other reason I would want to talk about it is because, you know, Japan downplays this event. And, you know, this is very problematic for 
society in today. You know, if I talk about this in a podcast, I will really focus on that aspect, the current perspective. Because in my opinion, that's what needs to be discussed more often. Because Japan denying that this event, the Nanking Massacre, took place and not wanting or not atoning for the killings and the rapings and all of that, in my opinion, is equivalent to Holocaust denial. Because if you take into account the other Axis power, Germany, Germany has in many ways atoned for what it did. It has apologized. And it has even paid reparations to those who were affected by the Holocaust. Germany nowadays, you really can't judge Germany nowadays for what it did in the 1930s. The Germany of today is a completely different Germany than Nazi Germany. I mean, for goodness sakes, Germany outlawed Nazi symbols. Germany outlawed giving the Nazi salute. People can go to jail for displaying these items, for giving the salute. You know, Germans are uncomfortable when this is brought up, and rightly so, because this is a very dark chapter in their history. But what this, in my opinion, what distinguishes Japan's approach from Germany's approach is that Germany put itself on the firing line in terms of opinion. Germany knows it's going to live with its Nazi past for as long as people, you know, study about it. But Germany can prove that it has it has and it continues to try to make things right. Whereas Japan is just sweeping this under the rug and it's hoping that with the death of all of those who were affected in Nanking and all of those who were affected in other war crimes which took place in Korea or in other parts of Southeast Asia or Asia in general, Japan is hoping that with all of these old people dying who were affected by this, that people will forget about it. And you know what? Japan's strategy is low-key working because not a lot of people know that this took place. That's why it's important for you to know about this and to hopefully one day get Japan to step up and do the right thing. The same way Germany did. But again, I'll save that for another episode. Let's move on to the second question. Who was Hernan Cortez? Hernan Cortez is a name many of us may be very familiar with. For those of you who don't know Hernan Cortez, he was a Spanish conquistador who overthrew the Aztec or Mexica. For sake of simplicity, I will simply refer to them as the Aztec. He overthrew the Aztec Empire and conquered modern-day Mexico for Spain. So there are some interesting things about Cortez that we should know about, I think, that deserves some sort of recognition. One of those things is that he almost didn't do what he would ultimately be known for, and that is, you know, bringing about the end of the Aztec Empire and conquering the land that we know as Mexico today for Spain. You see, at the time, before any of this conquering took place, Cortes was based in Cuba. The governor of Cuba, 
the Spanish governor of Cuba, Diego Velázquez, had sort of tapped Cortez on the shoulder to aid in one of his compatriots who also had ambitions to take over what is today Mexico, to aid in Juan de Grijalva and his expedition. So he sort of told Cortez, hey, go help Juan de Grijalva and sort of, so we can establish a colony on the mainland. But unfortunately, Velázquez was prone to jealousy and he ultimately regretted giving Cortez that task. He thought Cortez might be too ambitious. So he decided to appoint someone else, but unfortunately it was too late. Cortez was a man of action and he sailed off with a couple hundred men, several boats, and he said, all right, I'm doing this now. He essentially said F you to Diego Velázquez. And he, went, he did, and he did it anyways. He landed in what is today modern Mexico. He met the local indigenous peoples. And he quickly won them over. So a lot of sources state how charismatic he would sometimes come off as. And that's what ultimately got the indigenous people to back him. They gave him gifts. They let him know about the surrounding area, who inhabited it. They also gave him women. One of those women was the infamous Malinche, a woman who would interpret for him because she knew multiple languages. She understood multiple languages of the indigenous peoples, and she would even later bear him a son. It should be pointed out that this son would be the first mixed European and indigenous person ever to exist. For us Mexican-Americans, or Mexicans in general, I would I would argue that's our common ancestor right there. Is that individual that son is whom we can in a way sort of alter, not technically because we all have different family trees, family history. We're not all related, but you get what I'm saying. That's like our common ancestor. That was the first mestizo, if anything, that ever existed. Mestizo means mixed of mixed origin. European and indigenous origin. So anyways, Cortes set out to do what we know he eventually would get notoriety for. And I just want to point out, I'm in no way trying to downplay or water down the horrible things that he did or that he and his men did. But instead, I'm just kind of shedding a little bit of light on this individual for those who may not know as much as the rest of us do. Cortes was sharp. He was cunning. He was very quick thinking. And he had learned right away, thanks to his interpreter, Malinche, that there was trouble in the mainland. That trouble was that the Aztecs were having some political internal turmoil. That trouble was also that the Aztecs were not well liked by the various indigenous peoples in the area. They hated paying tribute to the Aztecs. The Aztecs demanded a lot from these indigenous peoples. And so Cortes and his men show up and suddenly these angry Aztec hating peoples, these angry Aztec hating indigenous peoples amongst them, the Tlaxcaltecas, the people of the modern Tlaxcala, they saw an opportunity 
to get rid of the Aztec problem. In the Spanish, in Cortes, they saw, hmm, this is an opportunity for us to get rid of these annoying Aztecs so that we can stop giving tribute to them. So this is one of the tough pills to swallow when it comes to Mexican history. And what I mean by that is very quickly, a lot of times, especially nowadays, with people who study Mexican history, and depending on what your political leaning is, a lot of you will say, well, the Spanish, it is completely 100% their fault for the conquest. And that's actually incorrect. You have to understand the Aztecs were not well liked by a lot of people. The Aztecs, like any other empire in Europe, because they were the equivalents of lots of empires in Europe at the time, the Aztecs were not well liked. The Aztecs imposed their religion on these other indigenous peoples. The Aztecs imposed their language on these other peoples. The Aztecs demanded tribute from these other peoples. The Aztecs, as a part of their religion, demanded sacrificial victims because the Aztec religion demanded that, you know, without going too much too further into it, they demanded that sort of thing. And these indigenous peoples did not like that. So with the Spanish showing up, they saw a sort of opportunity to get rid of that so that they wouldn't have to deal with the Aztecs anymore. And the rest we eventually know is history. We know how it went. If you study the Conquista, you know how these events took place. Cortes, his couple hundred Spanish men and countless indigenous allies, which numbered in the thousands, they marched into the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. After briefly meeting Moctezuma II, they captured Moctezuma II. And with Moctezuma II in Cortes's control, Hernan Cortes seeks to take the Aztec Empire and to control it. However, a Spanish force from Cuba would try to stop Cortes, but they ultimately failed. Pedro de Alvarado, a rather infamous man when it comes to the taking of the Aztec Empire, would commit a horrible massacre. Cortes would return after dealing with the Spanish force that tried to stop him, Cortes would return, and by the by August of 1521, the Aztec Empire would now be conquered. Cortes would legitimize his expedition before the Spanish crown, before the king of Spain, and the Spanish crown would give its approval for the conquest so long as it stays with Spain because there was some fear that Cortes might try to take the Aztec Empire and make his own kingdom, which was a possibility. You have to remember the distance between Spain and Mexico is huge at the time and transportation is not as simple. So he could have done that, but Cortes decides ultimately to go the route of claiming this for Spain. Of course, as time went on, Hernán Cortés's credibility would be attacked, his cruelty and his method of ruling his conquered peoples was very worrisome to a lot of bureaucrats, a lot of people back in Spain. It didn't help that an official of the Spanish crown 
who was supposed to go and investigate Hernan Cortez and what had taken place and all of this supposed cruelty that the Spanish bureaucrats were worried about. This Spanish official died rather suspiciously and Cortez was named the prime suspect. A lot of people thought that Cortez had this Spanish official killed so that his cruelty wouldn't be exposed. This bad reputation would prove to be his undoing. Cortez died trying to defend himself against the Spanish officials who distrusted him. He had spent a lot of money trying to impress the Spanish king and dissuade those who were against him. When he would go back to what was then New Spain, he tried to restore order, but eventually, you know, to summarize it, it all got to him. Cortes died in 1547. He died disillusioned with his life. He died in debt and he died miserable because, you know, a lot of people had sort of discredited him after what he had done. Interestingly enough, just to sort of wrap this up, even though Cortes died in Spain, his remains are actually in Mexico because before he died, he was going to make one final trip from Spain to Mexico, but of course he kicked the bucket and he died. But his remains somehow made it back to Mexico. They are in a church in Mexico City. They are safeguarded, but not a lot of people know where this church is at and there's a reason for it. Again, the conquista is in itself is a very controversial topic even today. There are fears that if people find out where Cortez's remains are, that they're going to go and desecrate them. And so there's like a small, from what I've seen, there's like maybe a, a small like plaque or just some sort of way of telling that his remains are there, but it is not advertised as a sort of tourist attraction because, again, the fear exists that somebody might try to take these guy's remains and, well, you know get some sort of revenge for what took place. They just, they've sealed up his remains in the walls of the church and they just don't tell people that it's there. Or if they do, it's very low key. So finally, we move on to our last question. What is so special about Argentina? This is a question I ask myself all the time. Argentina is very truly unique when it comes to Latin America. If you've heard them speak Spanish, they speak Spanish with a somewhat Italian accent. It's quite entertaining. I'm not trying to, dis and no disrespect to the Argentinians, but it's quite entertaining. It's very different from the way other Latin American peoples speak Spanish, but for them, they received a lot of Italian immigration, so I guess it makes sense to a certain extent. But anyways, so what makes Argentina so special? Several things make Argentina quite special. So Argentina is a country in South America, has a population of 44 million. At one time, Argentina was once one of the world's richest nations. This was at the beginning of the 20th century, according to an article in the Harvard Business School Journal. In fact, Argentina, at the beginning of the 20th century, was wealthier than France and Germany. 
However, as the years went by, Argentina's luck quickly changed. And you fast forward to today, Argentina is one of the most indebted nations, and it has also suffered numerous economic collapses. A lot of people like to speculate that this was due to the fact that, you know, Argentina had all this wealth, but it didn't create those institutions to keep that wealth or to sustain that wealth. Um, You know, they were a major exporter of a lot of goods, but they just didn't know how to manage all of that wealth. And so as time went forward, the Great Depression happened, and then pretty soon, you know, the 1940s and 50s and everything comes forward, and Argentina's luck just really starts to go down the drain. Argentina goes from being a first world nation to a developing one that it is today. Argentina has a high development index the quality of life in argentina if you compare it to other countries in latin america is a bit different but argentina still has financial troubles even today but that's one of the interesting interesting things about it in my opinion argentina once used to be incredibly rich richer than france richer than germany contrasted to today argentina is having a lot of financial issues Geographically speaking, Argentina is the largest Spanish-speaking country, and it is the eighth largest country in the world. Going back to economics, during the economic crisis of 2001, Argentina went through five presidents in 11 days. Yes, so 2001 was not a good year for Argentina. Lots of people came into the presidency, lots of people resigned. There was lots of protests, runs on the bank, and, you know, this is one of the interesting tidbits of Argentina. Speaking of presidents, Argentina has had two female heads of state. The current vice president of Argentina, Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, was president from 2007 to 2015. She was, in my opinion... She was an ideologue. She very much, she had good intentions, but I think it kind of went to her head and she tried to create this sort of movement around her. She's leftist. She's a leftist candidate. She was part of that, what was called the pink tide. Um, The pink tide, it means, you know, instead of like a red tide when it comes to communism and countries who were taken over by the red tide, the pink tide was countries that were controlled in Latin America by socialist leftist governments. She was part of that. And I think it just kind of got to her. And she tried to, in my opinion, she tried to create a movement around herself, around her name. She tried to liken herself to Eva Perón. And she tried to, she just tried to do too much in too little time. And it ended up backfiring on her. She left the country in worse shape than when she inherited it. But before Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, there was Isabel Perón. Isabel Perón was president of Argentina from 1974 to 1976. She took the office after her husband, the well-known Juan Perón, died because she was both the first lady and vice president of Argentina at that time. So when Juan Perón died, she took over as president. Isabel Perón 
has the distinction of being the first woman to hold the title of president as opposed to queen or as opposed to prime minister in the entire world. So that's another interesting fact about Argentina is that Argentina sort of leads the world in having the first female president. She wasn't elected, but nevertheless, she does get that credit. She was the first female president. She wasn't a queen, a constitutional monarch. She wasn't a prime minister. She was the head of state. It was with her that power resided for two years. She was ultimately overthrown by a military dictatorship. She exiled into Spain, and the rest is history. Argentina was also the first country, moving topics here, Argentina was the first country to use fingerprinting as a means of identification in 1892. This happened after a series of murders were committed. And when police were investigating the murders of, I think it was the murders of a couple children, they didn't have any leads. They didn't have any suspects. The only thing they had was a bloody fingerprint left on the left on a door handle. And so detectives used that fingerprint to determine the identity of the person who committed the murders. In this case, it was the mother of the two children who had committed the crime. Argentina also has the distinction of building and flying its own indigenous fighter jets the Pulki-1 and the Pulki-2, which flew in the late 1950s and the early, excuse me, the late 1940s and the early 1950s, respectively. The Pulki-2, Pulki is an indigenous word for arrow in Argentina. It is a part of one of the indigenous language. I want to say it's Guarani. It's part of that language, the Guarani language. I could be wrong. Um... The Pulki II was designed with help from a German aeronautical engineer named Kurt Tank, who had designed planes for Nazi Germany. Which brings me to the next interesting aspect of Argentina. Argentina was a Nazi safe haven. Yes, you heard that right. After World War II was done, Argentina was the place to go if you wanted to avoid any sort of accountability for the war crimes you had just committed as a Nazi, as a member of the SS, as a member of the Nazi party in general. That's where you went. It is estimated that around 5,000 former Nazis took refuge in Argentina. That's more than any of the other South American countries. The Argentine president at the time, our homeboy, Juan Perón, who we just mentioned a couple minutes ago, Juan Perón himself was an admirer of Mussolini. He admired Hitler. He was fascist-leaning. He liked that ideology. Even though, strangely enough, Juan Perón was a populist, he was a man of the people, and the party in Argentina today called Los Peronistas are actually a somewhat left-leaning party, which is strange considering the man they're named after liked Hitler and he liked Mussolini. But anyways, uh, Juan Perón established what were called rat lines. He used his diplomats and intelligence officials to get or smuggle Nazis out of Europe through these rat lines to Argentina. Some of them were issued passports. Some of these former Nazis were issued passports by the Red Cross. Some of them were issued by the Vatican. 
Although it should be noted that a lot of higher-ups in the Catholic Church didn't know that this was happening, although some fascist-leaning priests, some priests who supported Mussolini, who supported Hitler, did help out in this endeavor in getting them to Argentina. Among those who went to Argentina was the infamous Adolf Eichmann. For those of you who don't know who Adolf Eichmann is, I'll explain it in a little bit, but Adolf Eichmann fled to Argentina and lived and worked in Argentina under the name Ricardo Clement until 1960. Adolf Eichmann was high on the list for was high on the list, you know, he was high on the most wanted list for his crimes that he committed in Nazi Germany. They, the Jewish people at the time, because Israel had recently been founded as a nation, it only had about, I want to say, a couple, like more than a decade worth of existence. Um, Israel really wanted to prosecute Eichmann. And so in 1960, the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, they kidnapped him from the streets of Buenos Aires and they took him to Israel, to Jerusalem, to be tried. Eichmann was the mastermind behind the transportation of Jews to concentration camps. It is because of him that, you know, the Jewish people were transported from all over Europe to their final destination points, which would be some of the concentration camps. And so that's why they wanted to get him. He was tried in Israel, as I mentioned earlier, and he was executed by hanging. His trial is actually viewable on YouTube. I've watched it. You can watch it too. Um, there's also a documentary on YouTube and on Netflix, which sort of details how this all went down. It's very interesting. The other notorious Nazi who settled in Argentina briefly was one of the most evil men who has ever existed, Joseph Mengele, aka the Angel of Death. This is a man who conducted evil experiments in his time in Auschwitz. Again, there are various documentaries you can watch on what this guy did. He truly was the devil in the flesh. This guy, words can't describe what it is, how disgusting what it is he did. But he too also went to Argentina. He was there briefly, but then he eventually moved to Paraguay and then he moved to Brazil. He lived under a fake name and he unfortunately was never caught. He died drowning, though while he was swimming in a lake and eventually his remains were tested and it turned out he was Joseph Mengele. The government of Juan Perón believed that the Nazis or former Nazis at this point, they might be of some benefit to the Argentine state, just like they were of benefit to he, us here in the United States. You got to remember, former Nazis built our space program or they helped get our space, space program to where it is today. Um, so it was thought that maybe they could do the same thing for Argentina. Maybe they could do the same thing they did for us here in the United States and they could do the same thing they were doing in Soviet Russia. But 
ultimately, you know, Argentina had a lot of rocky trouble and a lot of them ended up leaving or a lot of them ended up going to the United States or other places after Argentina just proved to be not what it what Juan Perón claimed it was. Another interesting aspect about Argentina is that Argentina was the epicenter of Operation Condor. Operation Condor was a CIA-backed operation that a lot of South American countries took part in. It was state-sponsored right-wing terrorism against communists, socialists, and political dissidents, college students, etc., you name it. Anybody who was anti-government, Operation Condor took care of. Up to 30,000 people went missing during this period of time when Operation Condor was taking place. They, the Argentine government disappeared a lot of people. They disappeared a lot of people's kids. So it was really a terrible time to be in Argentina. The military dictatorship was very harsh. Moving to the per, uh, the Perón family again, Juan Perón. Argentina is well known thanks to Evita or Eva Perón, the wife of Juan Perón, the very flamboyant, extravagant wife of Juan Perón who loved to uh, travel and go all over Argentina and sort of show off the first class of Argentina. She used to be an actress. Eva Perón used to be an actress, but she then became the wife of Juan Perón. She supported his rise to power. She got him a broad base of support, and she became a champion of the people because she came from a poor background. Even though she was an actress and then she moved on to the wife of the president, she was very much you know, a woman of the people. And she used her privilege as the wife of the president to help the poor of Argentina. She is immortalized nowadays in the play Evita and the movie of the same name, Evita, which starred Madonna. If you follow me on Instagram, I have put this song so many times, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. That's where that song comes from, that play Evita. Another interesting fact about Argentina, sort of moving to more lighthearted topics, uh, Argentina legalized gay marriage in 2010. It was amongst the first Latin American countries to do so. And again, ending on a light note, Argentina won the World Cup twice. In 1978, when Argentina hosted the World Cup, and then in 1986, when Mexico hosted the World Cup, the famous Hand of God goal, which occurred during the Argentina versus England match, which took place in Mexico. You know, um, Diego Maradona was the author of that goal. So that's another interesting fact about Argentina. There are other interesting facts about Argentina. These are the ones that I just like to point out for the sake of this episode. So what's my take on all of this? Well, with regards to the first question, the Nanking massacre is a topic which I feel should be discussed more often. Like I said earlier, not many people know about it and it is still you know, the specter of this question is still haunting East Asia today. It's interesting to see how Japan acts when this question comes up, when the topic of Nanking comes up. 
it's not really denial sometimes that Japan does. It's deflection. They always try to deflect your attention elsewhere, whether it's anime, whether it's them being pacifists, whether it's something else, etc., etc. Japan ultimately is the victim in World War II. Japan is the victim of the atomic bombs. And that's what Japan plays really well. Is it says, look at us, we are the victims of this horrible nuclear attack. Don't pay attention to Nanking. So that's why I like talking about or bringing it up the Nanking massacre in order to educate more people about Japan's role as an Axis power. Because Japan, yes, the atomic bombs, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were devastating, but Japan was an Axis power. You have to understand there was a reason why it is we were at war with them. But again, I'll cover that in a separate episode. With Hernan Cortez, there's a lot more than meets the eye. Yes, he was a conquistador, but if you dig a little deeper, you come across a very complex individual who ultimately died disillusioned. He died in debt. He died with lots of enemies, you know, and whose remains are now hidden away. You know, he didn't die with that reputation that he probably wanted. He died obscurely and now he's hidden away no you know away from sight argentina too is a country with a very rich history which i will definitely you know a history that i will cover in other episodes you know the nazi connection is something i enjoy bringing up because Again, a lot of people don't learn about it. And every time I bring it up, people are a bit taken aback. They're like, you know, what are you talking about? Argentina did help the Nazis out. Yeah, they did. You know, it's something they have to live with. I could have brought up the Falklands War as well. Argentina going to war with Great Britain over some islands that are near it. Um, Again, I'll bring it up in other episodes. There, you know, I also want to talk eventually about Eva Peron. She's a very complex person herself. But with all that, you know, this was a very interesting Q&A session, a good filler week episode. I think moving forward, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make episodes every other week as opposed to every week. That way the topics don't come out rushed. You know, I'm not rushing to get a topic done in a series of days because when I do that, sometimes the quality of the episode suffers. I think it should be quality over quantity. I shouldn't race to just get as many episodes out. I think I should instead focus on one topic, research it thoroughly, because I have noticed that when I do research the topics thoroughly, or when I have give myself enough time, you know, those episodes do really well. Um, as opposed to when I felt rushed a bit, Sometimes I make a corners and the quality may not come out as good. So I'm going to give myself time because I am human in order to give you all quality episodes. So with that being said, make sure you follow me on Instagram. It's at the underscore history underscore ESE. I'll put the Instagram profile on in the description of this video so that you all can search up and follow. And for next episode i want to move from these rather dark topics that i sometimes cover i want to move to covering 
the Eurovision Song Contest, the history of the Eurovision Song Contest, why it came about, because it's a bit interesting to know why this contest that we Americans sometimes like to make fun of because it produces somewhat weird music. Um, I want to sort of bring up why it is this contest came about, its history, and why it is the way it is. You know, I I find it very interesting. I'm a fan of the Eurovision Song Contest. So for the next episode, we'll go on a lighter topic and we'll talk about this strange, strange competition from Europe that always seems to give us somewhat good memes and sometimes really good songs. So with that being said, I hope you have a good rest of the week. Thanks for listening. And I will hopefully have you as an audience again soon. So thanks for listening. Have a good one and be safe.